Good morning. Good morning. Glad that y'all are with us today, and thanks for joining us online. As Amy said, my name is Fred. I am uh, the lead pastor here, and I'm really glad that you are here. Here's what I hope happens today. I hope that you're inspired to walk in more faith and and trust in Jesus today than you had yesterday. And even better, I hope you're inspired to walk in more faith and trust with Jesus tomorrow than today. And if that is what you want, then congratulations, you have found your people, right? Because that is what I want for all of us. That is what we want. And so if that's you, then truly no matter who you are or where you are uh, now, uh, we really can be and are a church for you. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Ezra. Uh, We're going to cover chapters 3 and 4 today. Ezra is in the New Testament. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. During this last year, or 18 months or so, during this pandemic, how many of you have watched way too many movies? Yes, okay, in our house, like, like during the, the proper shutdown, we watched all of the Marvel movies in order. Like, like, not the order they were released, but in chronological order, the way the story unfolds, which was great fun. Uh, except for the Hulk, but really, does that even count? Then we watched uh, all the Harry Potter movies. Of course, and then we watched all the Star Wars movies in order, including the spinoffs, where they landed in the storyline. So we, 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 we kind of got our movie fixed during the, uh, during the pandemic. But I'll tell you this, in each one of those series, uh, there always seems to be a movie that disappoints me the most, a movie that I like the least. And it's this, it's always the second one. For some reason, right? It's always the second one. Here's, here's why it's the second one, I think. You get two things that happen in the second movie in a series. You get character development, always happens. So you get to know the characters better. You get their backstories. You get to know uh, what makes her tick. You get to know why she's the hero that she is. But you also get this deep revelation, right? So, so that's part of the character development. In the second movie, it's where we hear, Luke, I am your Right? Second movie. We get this deep revelation. But here's what you also get in a second movie. The villain is exposed as the villain. Right? You, you get this clear picture of who the villain is. You get to know what their agenda is. And the second movie always ends with you thinking the villain's going to win. Right? That's the way, that's the, way the, the second movie, uh, that's the way the, the second movie in, in a trilogy always happens. Second movie in a series kind of always follows this pattern. Well, if we were to make a series out of the, the, the book of Ezra in particular, these chapters, chapters 3 and 4, would be the second movie. Right? Chapters 1 and 2 would be the first movie because, because it's inspiring. Right? And for those of you who watched last week or those of you that were here last week, like Ezra, chapter 1 and 2 is very inspiring, isn't it? We got to see God stir in the heart of this pagan king and allow the people of Israel from wherever they were in the, in, in the, in the land of Persia, in the empire of Persia, from wherever they were, to come back to Israel to rebuild what had been destroyed uh, by, by their enemies. And so we got to see this, we, and then we got to see God stir in the people of Israel, that no matter where they were, when God prompted them, they came. We saw like 42,000 people come back to, the, to, to Jerusalem, come back to Israel to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. And, and when we say rebuild the temple, y'all, this wasn't just like a, a raise the roof type thing. This was to reestablish the worship of the God of Israel in Israel. This was a big deal. 
Right? That, this is what the, the, the first movie would do. And if, if this was a movie, when you left the movie, you would be inspired to. Like the whole point of Ezra's chapters 1 and 2 or part of the application of it is that it leaves you with the question, what is God stirring in you? Yes, God did this in Israel and he does it for you and he does it for the church today. And you would leave with this inspiring question, what is God doing? What is God stirring in, in me? Well, if we were to make a second movie out of the book of Ezra, it would be this. Because these two chapters are marked with despair Right? In these two chapters, the villain is exposed, and we see what his plans are. And the characters we're going to look at today would fit right into any second movie in a trilogy. Why? Because of this. Here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that every holy proposition meets an unholy opposition. Right? Every holy proposition... Anytime God stirs in you to do something that requires more faith and requires more trust is always met with an unholy opposition. It's always met with what we're going to call today this, detours, right? Now, our set uh, for the stage for this series, we're not in the middle of a project. Well, we are, uh, we, we're always in the middle of a project, but uh, aren't we, Marty? We're always in the middle of a project, aren't we? Uh, but this is actually the set design for the next, uh, for the next as we go through this series. And what we're going to do each week is we're going to add something to the set about, about what we're seeing in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, what it means to rebuild, what it means to, to say yes to what God is stirring. And what we're going to see today is that when you say yes to what God is stirring, chances are there will be these placed in front of you. And here's what I hope happens today. What I hope happens today is that, that as I talk about these detours that God puts us on, as the, these detours that God puts in front of us, let me say it that way, that I know there are people in this room and there are people who are watching online that have followed a detour sign. And they've taken what God has stirred in them and they've put it on the back burner or they've turned it off completely. And what I hope happens today is that you see clearly what the detour sign is and you trust God to get you back to what he's stirring. And you trust God uh, where you hadn't trust God. You, you, you put fear in its proper place and you take that step of faith. And so let me pray before we jump into this text today that we can all do that. That we can all see and hear what God is saying. Jesus, this is your word. And you wrote it. You wrote it through, through, through people that were inspired to put words down on, on, on paper. And, and, and we get to see that uh, in our hands. And God, I, what I pray today is that as I teach through your word, and as we as a church read your word together, I pray that our hearts and our souls and our ears are open to you. That if we have taken a detour, uh, a detour that was put there as an unholy opposition. I pray that today we repent of that. I pray that today we change and come back, that today we, we come back and, and, and put our trust back into you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, let's look at chapter 3, verse 1, uh, and see what's happening in this uh, sequel from chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this, When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in the towns, and the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. 
All right, so, so here's where we pick up. We pick up where a sequel always picks up, right? It picks up right where the last one left off. It's, it's September. The excitement is still there from the people coming back to Israel, and now they're gathering in Jerusalem. The seventh month is actually a great month in the Jewish calendar. It's September. But in the seventh month, they celebrate something called the Day of Atonement, which is a day of fasting, right? And when I say Day of Atonement, here's what I want you to think. I want you to think I need, right? When, when I say day of atonement, I want you to think I need. So when I say day of atonement, what do you think? Very good, right? Because on this day, here's what the nation of Israel does. They gather together to remember uh, their need for God, to remember, uh, to remember their faith in God, to take away the, the power and the penalty of their sins, to take away the power and penalty of their failures and their mistakes and the things that they did that God didn't ask them to do or the things that they didn't do that God did ask them to do. They gather together to remember their need for God and they gather together to remember their failures and missteps and wrongdoings and sin. And it's, it's a day of fasting and prayer. It's a day of repentance and confession. Well, look what happens when they gather together in verse 2. It says, Then arose Yeshua, Yeshua, the son of Zodak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of, of Shiltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built an altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And so here's what they did. When they gathered together for the Day of Atonement, they needed something. They needed an altar because that's part of the, of the celebration of, of, of needing God is this altar. And so they, they built an altar, and they built an altar because the previous altar had been torn down. Right? When people attacked Jerusalem, they tore down the temple. They tore down everything in the temple. They tore down everything around the temple. So they had to rebuild this altar because on the Day of Atonement, Okay, some of you are with me. All right, so on the Day of Atonement, there you go, you got it. On the Day of Atonement, if you were part of Israel, here's what you would do. You would bring food and place it on that altar. Now, keep in mind, you would bring food on the day you're fasting and place it on the altar, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but how many of you have ever fasted before, right? It's a big deal. right? I, I was talking to this family. The, the, the whole family fasted for 24 hours. And to talk to them about the meal that they had when they broke their fast, you would have thought it was the best meal that God had ever created. Right? Because they didn't have, they had fasted and prayed for 24 hours. They're like, my, what is that, a saltine? That is the best saltine I've ever had. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Right? One day, and I say this, uh, it, it it was actually quite uh, funny in the moment, but one day, or one season, I actually did a three-day fast one time to pray. Uh, it was a big deal going on, and I really wanted to hear from the Lord. And, and so I did a three-day fast, and, and I was with a friend of mine, and we had stopped at a red light. And this woman walks across the street carrying a plate with foil on it, right? And so we sit there, and, and we watch her walk across the street. And, and, and I'll tell you this, she was, she was in a, a very nice dress, and my buddy looks at me, and he's like, man, did you see her? And I was like, yeah, I wonder what she's got in that plate. Like, that's all I could think about was the food she was carrying, right? Like, I did. I was like, I bet it's brownies. Oh, I bet it's brownies, and I bet it's brownies with the caramel on them. I bet it's those brownies, right? 
Like when, when you're fasting, it seems like all you can think about is how much you need food, right? And so when the nation of Israel fasts and they bring food to this altar, it's to remember their need. You see, when you fast, you realize your need. When you fast, you realize you have a need. You realize your need. And the Day of Atonement was designed for the nation to see how much they needed God. Let's look at verse, let's look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this. It says, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And so what they did is they put this altar where they put it because of fear. Now let me, let me talk about fear because you see in Israel's day, because they had left the land, other people had come in and settled in their land. And so this altar wasn't just there for practical reasons. It wasn't just there so that they could celebrate and so they could go through the religious activities of the Day of Atonement. This altar was set in place to be this continual reminder, one, that there is a God of this land, right? And he is our God. And two, that we need this God as these, as these other people are around us. And we're going to see them play, play a part in this story. But this nation needed the God that they worshipped. And you see, here, here's why I want to talk about fear. We're going to do a deep dive in fear when we get into Nehemiah. But here's what I want you to know. Let's follow the, 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 the trail of the story. Ezra chapter 1 and 2, God is stirring. And God stirred in the heart of a pagan king and stirred in the heart of people all over the land to come back to the nation of Israel. 42,000 people came back to the nation of Israel. And then they get there and they, they have their first act of worship And their response, their first response is fear. You see, church, here's here's what I need us to hear. If God is stirring in you, most often, the very first response to that stirring is going to be fear. Right? It happened with the disciples. Jesus looked at his disciples. They're in this boat and this storm is, is, is raising up. And Jesus says, why are you afraid? Right? Fear is our natural response to, to God doing something uh, beyond our comfort zone, beyond our, our typical ability to trust, beyond our ability to have faith is, is, is fear. And I want you to hear me, church, that is a natural, normal response. And what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to tell you to put fear behind you. I'm actually going to tell you to lean into that fear. I'm going to tell you to not let that fear drive you away from God, but let that fear drive you to God. Right? Because fear is this indicator of God stirring. And so don't let fear become this detour to what God is doing. Their response to this fear is to establish and stone their need for God. Let fear do the same for you, that it establishes your need for God. Let fear push you to trust God instead of pushing you away from God. Listen, do you mind if I talk a little bit about what this altar looked like? Is that all right with you all? This is not on my script. This could go totally wrong, but this is something I woke up with this morning that I feel like we need to hear. And it's not like you're going to say no, so I'm going to keep going, all right? So this altar, in Exodus chapter 20, you get the Ten Commandments. God tells Moses what the Ten Commandments are, and then the very next thing after that, God tells Moses how to build this altar, and he basically gives him two instructions. One was this. If you use stone, you can't use any tool on that stone. And don't do stairs. 
Here's why those two things are there. I want to focus on stone. Because you see, when we, and so for those of you, by the way, for those of you who are uh, at home drawing, and for those of you who are, who are engaging in this family interaction piece, when you want to draw an altar, I know you want to make it look nice and neat, like almost like bricks. That's not what they had. They had a pile of rocks that were either in, in a circle or in a rectangle or even in a square, but, but there's fire in the middle. And that fire is what they place their offerings on. But those stones, here's what's so cool about those stones. They weren't to touch those stones. They weren't to shape those stones. They weren't to make those stones look pretty. God said, don't touch a tool to those stones. And here's why. Because when we approach God, we like to act like we're perfect, don't we? We like to act like everything is in straight lines and everything is ordered and everything is good because if we were to build an altar, we would want it to look pretty. But God said, I don't need your altar to look pretty. I need you to need me, is what God is saying. And so this altar that they built, in your head, I want you to think of the most uneven, imperfect altar you can think of because that's what it looked like. Do you know why? Because that's what we look like. As a church, we are imperfect, right? As a church, we don't have straight lines. As a church, we don't, we don't have it all together. And in God's economy, that's okay. In God's economy, what that actually does is it increases our need for him. This is where the nation of Israel is. When God is stirring in you, this is where you are. When God is stirring in you and there is fear that's building up in you and you want to say a good Christian wouldn't have fear, you're an uneven stone. An uneven stone, you, you have that fear, you lean into God. A good Christian wouldn't do this. Guess what? You're an uneven stone. You need God. See, I've been counseling for years, and I actually think a good Christian is the one who admits their need for God and who admits their imperfections, who admits their failures. Here at Fellowship, we say you can be anything but a liar because we all need God, right? That's what this altar represents. Let's look at chapter, I mean, verse 4. Verse 4 says this, And they kept... Um, where am I? Verse 4. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings and the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made free will offerings to the Lord. And so what happens now is they go from day of atonement. What does that mean? I need to the feast of booths. Now, here's what the feast of booths is. These, the, you go from, from a, a fast, the day of tabernacle, to a feast, the, the, the feast of booths. And what they would do is they would move out of their house and they'd move into these tent-like structures to remember when God brought the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt to the promised land. And they remembered that God provided for all their needs, that, that, that he gave them food to eat, he gave them water to drink, and, and he led them through the desert by, by fire by night and a pillar of smoke by the day. And so wherever he went, they went. Whatever he gave them to eat, they eat. Whatever he gave them to drink, they drink. And, and it's a time to remember that God provides. And so when you put these two celebrations together, you've got the Day of Atonement, which means what? I need. 
And then you've got the Feast of Tabernacles, which means God provides. And so in these two things, you have this great need, I need, and then a celebration that God provides. And so you see, focusing on I need can very easily lead us in fear. But when we remember that God provides, it helps us lean into God and move that faith, move that fear to faith. And so let me ask you, church, do we need this now? Do we need to remember that God provides when we have need? I think we do, don't we? You see, we've said that we need God to awaken us. We need God's alarm clock. That was last week's symbol, was that alarm clock. And once, our, once God starts stirring fear is this natural response, and, and, and you and I get to deal with this fear by acknowledging the fact that we need God, and what we see here is this promise of truth that God provides. He provides in our need. You see, this is what keeps God stirring, well, stirring, Right? is the fact that we need and God provides and we trust in God's provision. Now, I can't talk about need and provision without talking about Jesus because he is the perfect picture of our need and God's provision. Right? Because we all have this need in our soul. We all have this place in our soul that longs for God. Ecclesiastes says this, that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man and they don't understand it. Right? Because we all have this longing into us for more. And God has placed that need there. And Jesus is the one who answers that need. He is, the, he is God's provision for us. And when you say yes to a life of following Jesus, you say yes to this new life in Jesus. Yes to, to an offer of, of Jesus destroying the power and penalty of sin in your life. Yes to Jesus putting death back in the grave where it belongs so that you can experience life. Yes to having the God of the universe walk with you in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your pain, and in the midst of your suffering. You see, and if you find yourself searching, if you find yourself trying to fill that, that, that hole in your soul of eternity with, with things other than Jesus, you're always going to end up thirsty. And Jesus says, he is the one who gives life. Right? And you drink from his well and he will never, and you will never thirst. And so if you find yourself searching, your answer to this need is the provision of Jesus. And if you haven't said yes to Jesus, let, let today, let right now be the time that you do that. And, and if you're watching online, there'll be a little prompt that comes up. And if you want someone to pray with you, you click on that prompt and they will pray with you. And if you are here in person and you haven't said yes to Jesus and you want today to be the day that you do that, then come talk to me after the service. And I'll be glad to, to, to help you with that. Let's look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this. Um, it says, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. And so they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Ty Tyrenians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the, to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. And so here's what, here's what they say. Like, they had this fear. They built this temple. They worshiped. They had this need. They remembered that God provides, and they started building, and they put this foundation of the temple. And we move from this detour of fear to doing the work that God called them to do. They stepped into God's stirring. Look at the response to this. Now, 
in verse 8. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, I'm going to stop here real quick and, remember, and remind us that God's stirring takes time. They've been there two years. Two years. Sometimes God's stirring takes time. In the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shittai, how do you say that? And Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, uh, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Kadamel with his sons, and Judah together supervised the work in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and the sons of and their brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and, 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 the, Le- and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of the king of David of Israel. So, so they got this foundation laid, and they, they make this a worship celebration. It's a party and they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel and all the people shouted with great shouts when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid but many priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses and old men who had seen the first house of the first temple wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though many shouted aloud for joy. And so the people could not distinguish the the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for all the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now listen, you've got to understand this temple. Solomon's temple that was there before was this huge, grand structure, and and the city was on a hill, and at the very top of the hill was this structure, Right? And this foundation that was rebuilt was a fraction of the size of that. In this rebuilding process, there was a generation who had seen and they remembered Solomon's temple. And when they saw this foundation, they wept. Maybe for joy, but we'll see that it's actually of this weeping because they knew what was there before. This, there was a generation that remembered and they wept. You see, here's what we have to understand about this rebuilding process. When, when we rebuild with God, when we rebuild, we create something different than before. Right? When we rebuild, we create something different than before. If we want things the way they were, we repair. Right? This series isn't called Repairers. This series is called Rebuilders because I think God is doing something new with his church. I think God is doing something new in and with his people. You see, God is not asking us to be repairers. He's asking us to be rebuilders. And so hear me with this. Rebuilding comes with disappointment. Right? Rebuilding comes with disappointment. Because things won't be the same way they were. And some of that is good. Some of us have gone through this pandemic and we tasted something that we had forgotten we could do. And it's good. But then as things start opening up, busyness hits us again, doesn't it? And we have this tension of, man, there were things that I hated about the pandemic and things that I loved. And I don't want to lose the things that I love. Y'all, it's estimated 50% of people coming out of this pandemic will have debilitating depression and anxiety. Because we have all been through a trauma and we don't have anybody knowing how to get us through this. 
right? Kids and students, you felt this sadness, haven't you? Like kids, like, I, I, I know you miss having recess with your friends the way it was. Teenagers, you have missed proms and graduations. Grandparents have missed being able to be with their grandkids and see these, these milestones. Sadness abounds. But let's embrace it and call it what it is, that it's disappointment. There's a part of us that wants things to be the way they were. But when we're rebuilding with God, things are going to be different. And it's okay. Here's, what I, here's why I'm honing in on this. What I want for us as a church is I want us to be okay to have shouts of joy and weeping at the same time. Because that's just real. Right? But when this happens, y'all, I also want you to know that we have to see that God is providing for our needs. And there can be shouts of joy and there can be weeping at the same time. And let's be okay with those shouts of joy and weeping because here's what happens. When we do this, we have an enemy that takes notice. Now, if this was a movie, right? If this was a movie and every holy opposition meets uh, unholy, every holy proposition meets unholy opposition, here's what you would see if this was a movie scene. You would see these shouts of joy. You would see people weeping. And then you would see one group of people kind of off in the corner, and they're doing neither. They're like this. They're getting mad. Because God's kingdom is advancing and they don't like it. Because God's kingdom isn't their kingdom. And, and, and what we're going to see now is, is, is how this plays out. Look at verse 4, chapter 1. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. So, so adversaries is this word for, for enemy. It's a big word for enemy. And here the, the unholy opposition is exposed. Here now we see this villain. Now Satan is said to be crafty and he is said to, to, to be sneaky. But listen, the detours that we're going to see unfold in this chapter are the same ones that he uses with us every single day. He may be crafty and he may be sneaky, but he is not creative. And, and this chapter, I think, is here, and actually I think these two books are here to show us what Satan does, what our true enemy does to get us into detours and to get us off of God's path for us. My hope is that when we see these, we can wrap our hearts around them and avoid detours because fair warning from here on out in the rest of this series, the rest of these two books, nothing attempted for God will go without some challenge to it. Everything this nation does to move forward into God's stirring, to move forward into God's plan, is going to have a detour sign placed in front of them where they have the option to do something else. Every holy proposition from here on out is going to be met with an unholy opposition. And so when you're walking, when you're walking in obedience by faith, here is what you will face from your adversaries. We're going to see four more detours. First one was fear. These four all begin with D's, right? Because I'm a preacher and that's what we do. Right? Let's look at verse 2. It says, And they approached Zerubbabel. So this is the adversaries approaching Zerubbabel. And they approached Zerubbabel, because he was the head of, of Israel leading the work, and the heads of the father's houses, and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Sheridan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, but Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers of the house of Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building the house of our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. So what happens is this enemy, these adversaries, people of a different kingdom, come to the nation of Israel and they say, hey, let us work with you. We worship the same God you do. And they could tell right off that they didn't. And they said, no thanks, we don't, we don't need your help. And so what they set out to do was the first thing that Satan will do when God's stirring is there and you lean into the fear. And they do what Satan does because they're of his kingdom. And they try to instill discouragement to the people of Israel. Now in Hebrew, discouragement means to sink and it means to drop. Right? And, and one of the, if, if one of the basic steps of rebuilding with God is to acknowledge your need, discouragement convinces you that God won't provide for that need, that God has dropped you. If your need isn't being met in the timing that we want, obviously God has dropped us. Obviously God isn't going to provide. That's what discouragement is. And so that's what this, this, the, the, these adversaries are doing is they are looking to the nation of Israel and trying to discourage them and trying to convince them that their God doesn't hear them, that their God doesn't answer their needs. Let's look at the next one. So it says, And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed the counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so what happens here is depression. Now this word, because here's why, this word afraid means anxious. And what they did is they instilled fear into the people of Israel. And, and, and this word has this idea of being downcast. It means being weighed down. When, when David wrote the Psalms, why is my soul so downcast? It means weighed down. It's this picture of a sheep that goes through thorns. And their, and their wool continues to pick up more and more and more burrs and thorns until the sheep literally can't move because the weight in its wool is so heavy from all the stuff that it's picked up. And that's what this nation, that's what these adversaries are doing to the nation of Israel is they're putting more and more weight on them so that they feel, the, the, that they feel depressed, so that they feel anxious. Y'all, fear can lead to our greatest and longest detours. You see, our enemy uses fear all over these passages. And I want to tell you, in my life, fear has had a very big role for many years. My fear looks like people-pleasing. And here's the, here's the, the, the and people-pleasing basically means that I want to make everybody happy. But here's what I've learned. If you try to make everybody happy, guess what? Everybody's mad and you're exhausted. Right? Because that's what happens. When I try and make people happy, I end up making everybody mad and I'm the only one exhausted. And God has shown me that the root of that is nothing but fear. And what I've learned is to lean in to that fear, and in its place, I have found Jesus. And he has walked me in places of, uh, of fear with faith, and has transformed the way that I lead. He has transformed the person that I am, and I am so thankful for that. Because if you let fear lead you to Jesus and not away from him, what you get is you get Jesus. Right? But our enemy isn't done there. Because if fear doesn't work, the enemy will attack the person. Look at verse 6 through 16. It says, in the days of Artaxerxes. Now, I'm going to, uh, well, no, it said, let's go to verse 6. I started in 7. Sorry. Verse 6 says this. 
And in the reign of Harris, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So what they did now is these adversaries, since, since the work kept going, since discouragement didn't work, since, since uh, depression didn't work, now they're going to write a letter to their boss. Right? And they're going to make these accusations against, the, against uh, their boss. And this is the, what the letter says. If you jump down to verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that they sent to, to their boss. It's a new king in the land. And they say this, to, uh, to Art, Artaxerxes, the king, Your servants, the, man of the, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem and they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city and they are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations which is a first lie because they're not even working on the walls they're rebuilding the temple now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished they will not pay tribute custom or to or toll and the royal revenue will be impaired now, because we eat the salt of the palace, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order to, that search be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of these records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up uh, in and from uh, in it from from of old, and that is why the city was laid waste. Make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. So here's what they do. They try and discredit the people. Have you ever heard this? Because I've seen it time and time again. Because if the workers or God are being attacked here, and, and, and when God is stirring in you and you lean into, into God in the midst of your fear and, and, and discouragement and discredit and, and discouragement and, and depression are there, but, but, but they find their place and you keep moving forward in the work of God. Have you ever seen this? That when somebody can't attack the message, they do what? They attack the messenger. Right? When someone can't attack the message, they attack the messenger. I see it time and time again in people that are choosing to follow the work of God. That all of a sudden these accusations come up against them that simply either like this one aren't true or that there's a shed of truth to it but it's blown so far out of proportion or something that's, that's from their past that they have confessed and repented of um, and, and, and the attacker isn't letting them move on from that. You see the next step, the next detour is to discredit someone. So if, if discouragement doesn't work, if depression doesn't work, the next detour is that, that our enemy will try and discredit the people doing the work of God. And if that's not enough, this is the, the, the last one. Verse 17, And the king sent an answer to Rahab, commander of Shemashi, uh, the scribe and the rest of the associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the, the river greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and a search has been made. And it has been found that this city from old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. The mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this manner. Why should damage grow 
to hurt to the hurt of the king. And then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before the adversaries, the scribe and their associates, they went into haste to the Jews in Jerusalem and by force ceased. And then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so listen, if the first three, if, if depression, if, dis, well, if discouragement, depression, and discrediting doesn't work, then here's the ultimate one, and that is that our enemy will distract us from the work of God. Because if all that doesn't work, what our enemy will do is he will get us focused on something else. And our enemy would love to have us actually focus on him instead of focus on the work of God. Right? And I see this, like when I ask people, hey, how has your time been in the pandemic? It's so easy to go to all the negative stuff, right? It's so easy to go all, all the bad things that are happening. And sometimes it takes a reminder to go, okay, now tell me something good that happened in the pandemic. Oh, oh, that's, that's a little harder, right? Because our adversary loves to distract us. And I've seen him even take joy to step out from behind the curtain to draw attention to himself rather than let God's people follow the work of God. And so the result of this is that the work does stop. And it stops for for quite some time. Now next week we're going to see it pick up again. But before we do, here's what I want us to consider. Out of these detours, out of fear and and the four D's, which do you see happening in your life? Do you see any of these happening in your life? And if so, which... Which ones? As I've been, as I've been ta- taking uh, steps of faithful, as you've been taking steps of faithful of, uh, obedience, where do you feel the enemy pressing in? Well, let me encourage you with a truth that we're going to see next week. Consider this a trailer, right, of the movie next week, right? And it's this. It's that God finishes what God starts. You hear me? God finishes what God starts. This story isn't over. We're only in chapter 4. We've got a long way to go. God finishes what God starts. And if God awakens you, if God's alarm clock went off for you to walk in obedience and faith and trust, and you understand that you need him and you trust that he will provide, here's what I know that we will see. We will see God finish what God starts in your life. I guarantee you that. Let's pray. Jesus. You do finish what you start, even when it feels like you're not, even when it feels like the detour sign has been big and it is old and rusty now because we have been on this road for too long. We trust that you finish what you start. And God, I pray for us that we will repent of any detours that we have been on and we will confess them as that. We will confess them as giving into fear and, 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 and letting fear drive us away from you instead of to you. And we will walk with you in faith and trust and even a whole heaping lot of patience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.